We are in week three of our study and journey through Nehemiah, and something really interesting happens. Because in weeks one and two, Nehemiah chapter one and two, we see this momentum building. Right? We see Nehemiah capture this passion and the dream. We see him convince the king, right, by God's grace to let him go, send materials and, and helpers. And then he then casts this same vision to the people of Israel. They then jump on board as well. And what God does is he does something very interesting. He pauses this story right when things are starting to pick up, right when the action is starting to happen. And he says, hold on, I need you to know who contributed to this work. I need you to know who laid down their jobs, their lives, their preferences to contribute to the work that I am bringing. After learning about the scope of the problem and the potential for opposition, we come to this moment where the work begins. But before the work begins, there's this recognition of who is serving. And during uh, the darkest hours of World War II, there come some great stories and quotes and moments of inspiration, often from a guy named Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister of England during World War II. And there were many hopeless moments for the English during that war. And he issued this now famous call to the British people to rise up in the face of great opposition. He laid before them the bleakness of their situation and issued a call to unity and great effort, exhorting them to action with the pronouncement, and he said, I quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And that reminds me of Nehemiah's situation after opposition starts to come already, where there's a collection of people. Israel was not, at this point, a nation full of carpenters and woodworkers, Unskilled labor were coming to the aid of Nehemiah and coming to participate in God's plan. Nehemiah surveys the rubble of Jerusalem's walls and issues a similar call to his people when he says in Nehemiah 2 verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He gives them this vision. He tells them the story of how they had gotten to this point, And they say, let us rise and work. Let us rise and build that we may no longer suffer derision. He gives no promise of fame or prosperity, no special accommodations for the wealthy or the powerful, just a call for all to come and build. And build they do, placing themselves along the walls, working steadily to restore the good name of their God. Because we know Jerusalem was more than just a city without walls. It was kind of this, this representation of who the people of God were and what God had done for them. And so it's not just the city that is in ruins at this point. It is their honor and their relationship with God that is broken and in ruins right now. And right when this Nehemiah gives this call to rise and build, the story pauses and the narrative halts for a chapter and God uses this book to shine a spotlight on the people who did the work. And like, like I was saying earlier, this might be one of those chapters that uh, we might skip in a teaching series or, or you or I might skip in our personal devotions or Bible study or something like that or in a community group. 
But this chapter demonstrates something very significant about God and his people. It demonstrates God's heart for the brokenness of the world. And his heart for the brokenness in a world, in this world, involves a call to his people to respond in obedience and faithfulness. This wasn't just Nehemiah's thing. This wasn't his story. There's an inherent danger in making the book of Nehemiah about Nehemiah only. Because in chapter 3, God pauses the story and he says, I need you to see everyone else who has jumped on board. And so what I want to do is I want to look at at three things uh, that I think we can pull away from this particular chapter and what God is doing in this chapter. And I think even what he is speaking to us in this chapter. And the first that is evident is that people matter to God. I think often we live lives assuming God doesn't care or he hasn't taken an interest. He doesn't care if we serve or not. He doesn't care if we obey him or not or or follow his commands and his teachings to live in this world or not. Whether we sin or not, it's sort of just kind of one big bubble of humanity and, and maybe it'll be more good than bad at the end of the day. And what we find in this chapter is that God cares about people. Every single person. I mean, there are probably a a variety of reasons why the people are listed the way they are, but one of the things we can take away is that God cares about the people who contributed to this work in Nehemiah. The second thing that we learn from this chapter is that obedience is more valuable to God than skill. It has to do with our heart. Obedience is more valuable to God than our skills. And the third thing we learn is that vision and leadership can only go as far as the obedience and faithfulness of God's people. Right? What do they call a leader with no followers? Just a guy taking a walk. Vision and leadership can only go as far as obedience and the faithfulness of God's people. So we're going to unpack each of those three and seek to learn uh, what we might see about Jesus through this chapter. And the first, that people matter. People matter to God. Nehemiah dedicates an entire chapter of his retelling of the story to talk about the specific people that contributed to the rebuilding of the wall and their role specifically. And this might be strange to have a whole chapter dedicated to names, but if you spent time reading the Bible, you might remember the book of Numbers, which is a census of God's people, quite a few names, or the genealogies in the beginning of Matthew and Luke, kind of painting the early picture of where Jesus came from. And so often in Scripture, we see these lists of names, but no Scripture is wasted. None is there by accident or meaningless, or they're trying to fill pages or anything like that. The names matter. The Holy Spirit authors every word and uses his word to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. And so the purpose in each of these instances is to serve, right, some aid in the storytelling that God has. And in Nehemiah, God wants us to know that it wasn't just Nehemiah's thing, this building of the wall. It wasn't about a, an amazing leader who kind of, against all odds, rallied a people, and the people don't matter, but he had the masses with them. But in Nehemiah, God says, I need you to know the people who contributed to this work. And maybe uh, this highlights an important issue we need to grapple with today. 
Like so often, our cultural norm is for one person to do the work and for everyone else to receive, right? And so I, I, I don't know if some of you guys can remember back to college or maybe high school where you had to do group projects. You guys remember group projects? I hated group projects. All right, I'm going to get, I was the guy who did all the work in a group project. I'm just going to lay it out there, right? I was not like an A-plus student or whatever, but I'm that guy who's like, no one else is doing work in the group and this thing's due tomorrow, right? And so I would be the guy kind of carrying everybody and everyone would just kind of ride the coattails of my work. And you know the thing that would do that would drive me nuts is right before we're about to turn in, they would try to change everything and edit all the work that I'd put in and say, well, that sounds weird. And I'm like, you didn't help at all. What are you doing here? Anyway, okay, so I hate group projects, right? And so for me, this is an interesting thing because it is easier for one person to do the work and everyone else to just jump on board with that work. Way easier, right? But I think this parent, this problem is apparent not only in group projects in high school or college or whatever, but it's apparent in the church because it's much easier to come, listen to someone teach, listen to someone like Jack lead worship or lead music, and then leave unchanged, uninvolved, unimpacted. It's much easier, right? It's much easier to jump into a church that has thousands and thousands of people where we won't be known or noticed or seen to receive the things we want and to leave. And no one knows any different. Now, big churches aren't bad by any stretch. I know a lot of gospel preaching, Bible-loving, huge churches that are doing their best to involve every one of its members. But in a culture that says, I want to get what I want to get, no one else can tell me different, This is what we have to grapple with. This kind of consumeristic nature has creeped its way into the church in the last hundred or so years. What are the services that I can get? Is there a convenient time for me to show up? is Is there a small group that has the right demographic that matches me? We've tried really hard at Anthem to to battle those things. And not to battle the churches that do offer things like that, but to battle that mentality in our culture that says, if they don't have the thing that I want, I'm not really a part of this thing. And what I've loved in our story is there are people who've seen that, who've seen that the gospel is the thing that unifies us together. It's not that they have the convenient thing or the right thing or the thing that matches my, my tastes or anything like that, but it's Jesus that brings us together. And that's, that's not an easy thing by any stretch. And so it's why we take a moment to pause And to say what God wants to highlight in chapter 3 of Nehemiah was it just wasn't Nehemiah's thing. It wasn't the professional guy doing the work. But it required the entire nation of God to contribute to what God was doing. We see in Nehemiah, and what we actually frequently see in the big story of God is a radically countercultural way of approaching life. Right? God's way is that everybody contributes. Everybody participates. Everybody helps out. Where we have this beautiful picture in the book of Acts, right between chapter 20 and 21. Now Luke, uh, the, the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And in this, this moment, we see in all of Luke, and in the first 20 chapters of Acts, Luke is recording and reporting on the story of who this Jesus is and, and the disciples in the early church. And there's this moment from chapter 20 to 21 where Luke joins the story, right? The language goes from they and them to we and us. And it's important literary note, but it's also an important gospel note that in that moment, They're on a boat, right? And Paul has just left the church in Ephesus and have prayed for the Ephesian elders and they get out 
And Luke has to jump in. He's not just a reporter on the sidelines writing things down. He is intimately involved in the story that happens after that. It's such a beautiful picture of what God wants from his church. So many of us sit on the sidelines and and give our critiques or feedback or whatever, and God wants us to jump in. Why does it matter who built what? So maybe the names matter, right? We can say, okay, God wants it to be known that lots of people contributed to that. Okay, I can get on board, but why, why are we saying this person built that gate or this, pulse, this person built that gate or this wall or whatever? Why does it matter who built what? And what we see is we get a unique glimpse into the nation of Israel at work, right? They're working together, building together, shaping together. That's how God works. He brings his people together to accomplish the work. But what is interesting is that we see lots of people who have different professions, different apprenticeships, different skills and trades contribute to the work of the wall, of building the wall. And so that's our second thing, is that God cares more about our obedience than our skills, Right? Our obedience to God is more valuable than the skills we can bring to God. Now, if you're an A-type, achiever, get-stuff-done kind of person, anything like me in that regard, that may be really difficult to grapple with because immediately I'm saying, well, I have all these skills or all these abilities I can bring to the table. And God says, I know I gave you all those abilities and skills, but what I want is your heart. I want your obedience. I want the willingness to serve me wherever I would have you. And this also might be hard for us to grapple with because it's much easier to say, I'm not ready, than to say, yes, God, send me or use me, right? And we have kind of two opposing stories just like that in the Old Testament. We have the prophet of Jonah. God tells him to go to Nineveh and proclaim his gospel and call them to repentance. And for whatever reason, Jonah says, no way, I don't want to go there. And something because uh, he just hated the city so much, they had rebelled so far. Some thought it's because Jonah thought himself an inadequate prophet or preacher or whatever. For whatever reason, he said no to God. And if we grew up going to Sunday school, we know what happened next to Jonah. But we have a very different picture with the prophet Isaiah, In chapter 6, when God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Two very different postures of willingness to serve God. And what we see throughout scripture is to God, our obedience, our posture of willingness to serve is more valuable than, than how we can serve or more valuable than the skills or the things that, that we might be able to contribute. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3. Who built the sheep gate really early on? The first couple, the first verse, the high priest built the sheep gate. I'm pretty sure construction was not a part of the Levitical training in the nation of God. He was also not supposed to get his hands dirty and be doing stuff like this. He was supposed to be the most clean, the most presentable to God when making these sacrifices. Who helped repair the wall in verse 7? A governor. Who helped repair the wall in verse 8? A perfumer. Verse 9, the ruler of the half district of Jerusalem. And verse 12, the other ruler of the other half district of Jerusalem who repaired the east gate. The guards who were supposed to be on duty protecting the city repaired the east gate. In verse 31, one of the goldsmiths repaired part of the wall. And in verse 32, more goldsmiths and, and merchants like retail workers, salesmen repaired the sheep gate. 
We go on and on and on, but what we see evident is there was a sense in which that people understood what the Lord was doing and didn't want to be left out. They were willing to jump in wherever, even if their, their gifts or their skills didn't match up with the, the need. Right? We always say kind of around here, no one has the spiritual gift of unpacking a trailer, but it still needs to get done, and it's still out of service to our Lord. And as Nehemiah is calling people to build the gate, to build the wall, I'm sure there were carpenters and, and you know, guys who worked with wood, carpenters and, and stuff like that in their midst, and I'm sure they jumped in and served, but the call was to everybody, to the governors, the rulers, the high priests, the merchants, the perfumers, to jump in and help. One of the things I love about the report of who contributes to the rebuilding is that it's not only the skilled laborers who do the work, but everybody gets to work. And oftentimes when God calls us into action, it's, it may not be connected to what we're able to do. It may not be connected to what we think we're skilled at. But rather, God is just giving us opportunities to serve and to say yes to him. This is really evident in a new church, right? When we don't have the masses of people and skilled labor and specialized labor, where we sort of just say, all right, we're all hands on deck. Everybody is helping everywhere. And I love that. It's such a beautiful picture of what we see here in Nehemiah. We have talked a bit, uh, kind of over, over time, how God likes to use certain parts of us to, to serve our kingdom. He likes to use our time, our talents, our treasures. You guys may have heard that, that phrase before. That's all good and, and important and valuable. But there's another category. It doesn't really start with a T, so it doesn't follow the, the pattern. Sorry. But there's something else that God calls us to, and it's just, it's our participation. Sometimes God says, go, help, serve, give, and we just say, yes. I'm trusting God will train me on the way. I'm trusting that God will give me the -the on-the-job training I need. Because God's mission is so much more important than our skills, or lack thereof. And more importantly, God is glorified in our weakness, Right? There are a number of examples that, of things that God calls us to daily as believers that may be outside of our skill set. Right? Whenever we talk about the concepts of, of praying for people, encouraging people in prayer, or evangelism, or making disciples, one of the biggest objections to that is people don't feel equipped to do any of them. Right? So they say things like, I don't know enough, or I don't have enough experience, or I've never done that before. And, and I understand there's sometimes fear connected to those things, and, and that training, yes, is important, because nobody likes to be in a conversation where you feel like you don't have all the, the answers or anything like that. But as we look to the people in Nehemiah chapter 3, perfumers repairing the gate, priests rebuilding walls, I'm sure they weren't equipped either but God uses them in their, in their lacking or their weakness or their inexperience. Someone was just telling me a story this morning on how they, they were a little bit late getting here to help, to help set up. And uh, they kind of, as they were coming in the back door, bumped into someone in the parking lot and had an incredibly fruitful and kind of eye-opening conversation, which is someone who's out there sweeping and he works on Sunday mornings. And they just started talking about hope and, and Jesus and church and Christianity and all these different things and about his, his family and all of that. And, and one of the things she was telling me as she was telling me the story was she doesn't normally get herself into those conversations because she might not feel equipped or ready or it's not really her thing. 
but God used her anyway. God interrupted her plans to do things she might have had skills for, to use her in that moment to, to speak some encouragement or some hope into that person's life. That's such a cool story of what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3. That God will sometimes call us out of our comfort zone to accomplish his will in other people's lives. Look at what Paul says in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, verse 12. Turn there with me, if you will. Paul, epic church planter dude. We might think the super Christian of all Christians, right? This guy who, who had a revelation of Jesus, who wrote scripture. And even with him, God used his weakness to glorify himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The purpose of God using our weakness is his glory. And in our weakness, we are strong. It sounds like an oxymoron, right? Kind of like whoever tries to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will save it. Jesus fully intends to interrupt our normal life that we feel equipped for, turns it upside down to reveal his power and his glory and testimony to the world. Now, are we to avoid training of any kind and just sort of wing it all the time? Not at all. In fact, Paul actually says in the book of Ephesians that he gave specific people to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so there's this tension we walk in of both and. Like, do we use our lack of training as an excuse not to participate in what God's calling us to do? No, but do we totally abandon training and just sort of go out there and wing it? No, not at all. It's both and. And the bottom line is God is looking at our motivation, at our heart. Are we willing to say, here am I, send me? Are we willing to say, I'm not really equipped to build a gate or a wall, but, but God, I'm trusting that you're going to equip me to do it. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, to let our light shine before all men, that our good works would display the Father. Right? The purpose of our weakness, the purpose of our good works, the purpose of our life and living on mission and in ministry is to glorify our Father in heaven. How often do we depend on God, ask him in prayer for something we feel like we've got handled? Probably not very frequently, right? Yeah, not at all. But how often do we go to him in prayer when we're put in spots where we feel totally inadequate, totally ill-equipped, totally unprepared for, and we depend on him to come through. God wants us to seek him, and he wants us to demonstrate with our lives that it's his power and his spirit that empowers and equips us. Be ready for God to use you in ways you don't expect. That's where he is most glorified. That's where he's most magnified. 
If God is giving you an opportunity, don't recoil because you feel ill-equipped. But in faith, embrace what God has for you. Look at Nehemiah uh, in chapter 3, verse uh, 5. We get a little snippet of someone who did not serve. And next to them, the the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. There was such confidence in Nehemiah's plan and his mission and what he was calling everyone to that it wasn't just about helping out and like, oh, that guy just didn't come and, and help us out. There was such a confidence that this is what the Lord was doing, that those who refused, their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Do we have a posture in our hearts of service, even if we feel unequipped, even if we feel like we don't have the experience or the right words or the right background? Are we willing to say, God, use me however you would use me? People often look at Nehemiah and say how great he is. He rallied all these people to this project. He even got people to ditch their day jobs and join in. But the reality is, that his vision and leadership only went as far as the obedience and faithfulness of God's people, right? Yes, God sent Nehemiah to proclaim this vision and and put the mission before the people of Israel, but they had to get on board. And that's the third thing I want us to see here is that Nehemiah rolls into town, points out the challenges that Jerusalem is facing, shares the vision, but it could have ended there. People can get excited about vision, and a story, and a new project, and not jump on board. And what would have happened to the story in Nehemiah if he shared this vision? The king let me go. He sent all these resources, and the Lord gave me this dreams, and the the visions, and he gave me this mission, and he sets it before the people, and they just said, oh man, cool story, Nehemiah. Go back to my perfuming, or whatever. Like the story would have stopped. But what God shows us is that when he shared that vision, people jumped on board and they say, yes, I can help. Yes, I can serve. The significance of this is without people responding and saying, yes, the vision God has isn't carried out. And this is huge. When the people of God say yes to where and when God is working, this is a big deal and it's highlighted in scripture. Look at the story of Israel. When they're saying yes to God throughout their history, they're firing on all cylinders. When they're willing and ready to go where he would have them, they're in that tight relationship. He's leading them, they're following, and and they're winning battles, and they're taking land and all of this stuff. But when they start saying no to God and start worshiping other things, they start losing battles. Their land is being taken. They get taken into exile. The kingdom is split. What we see is that God wants us to say yes to what he's doing, and join in with him with the work. If you've been around Anthem for any length of time, you know we are firm believers in the the sovereignty of God, which means he's at work, he's doing his thing, and he has the ultimate master plan. He will carry out his purposes, absolutely. God can do anything, anytime he wants. But there's this tension that he puts the task of moving the kingdom forward in front of us and invites us to join in. And he says, I will use my church. I will use believers to propel my mission forward. And it's this curious and and beautiful and sometimes frustrating mystery that we wade into, that God is repeatedly putting opportunities in front of us and we have the freedom to jump on board or not. 
We can say yes to God or turn away and, and say no. God will carry out his mission and his purpose with or without you, but he gives us the opportunity to join in with him as he's restoring all of humanity and creation. And when we say yes, we, we see the fruit and the joy in participating with God. And when we say no, there's this grief of missing out on, on the joy. And honestly, after a pattern of saying no to God over and over and over and again, his voice in our life starts to dim and become callous. And it becomes harder to hear us because we keep rejecting him over and over. Look at the, the parable of the talents. We talked through this a few weeks ago in Matthew 25. There's joy with the two servants who took what their master gave them and, and used it. And they had a return. And when they brought it back to the master, the master was pleased. And they said yes to him. There was joy in that. To the servant who just buried it and didn't do a thing with what his master gave him, there's grief. There's a grief on missing out from the joy that comes from the master. So are we prepared in our hearts to respond to the vision that God puts in front of us is the question. As we look at Nehemiah chapter three, just a list of names of people doing things, we see that God cares about people. And what's more important than the skill we might bring to the table is our obedience and our willingness to serve. And when God is putting vision before us as a people, are we willing to jump on board and say yes to God? Second Peter chapter one Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God has given you everything you need that pertains to life and godliness through him. Which means as a believer, if you have trusted the name of Jesus, you lack nothing. Now, God will, of course, equip you along the way. He will grow you and mature you along the way, but you lack nothing for where God has you right now. So with your, your spouse, your kids, your family, your friends, your job, your classes, whatever, wherever God has you in this moment, you lack nothing. God has equipped you. Will we say yes to him? Will we say yes to him? Will we trust that he has equipped us, and that he will continue to equip us? If God calls us to do something in the spirit, he gives us the resources to carry that out. God called Nehemiah to do something that Nehemiah had no ability to do on his own. He was a slave to the king. And through the grace of God's story, the king sent him willingly the king gave him resources. He rallied the people. The people got on board and they rebuilt the wall and the gates. God, Nehemiah responded to God's own heart for his people. So the question I want us to land on today and even to take just a few moments meditating and, and thinking about and, and considering is how can we say yes to God? Where are we at in our life? Where, what are the things he's put before us and how can we say yes to him? Right? There's a lot of reasons and excuses we can provide for saying no. How can we say yes to God? God is and will be calling us as a church into some really exciting things. Uh, we are brand new. We only have our future ahead of us. This is great. 
And we, we are kind of audacious with the things that we want. And I just want to share a couple uh, with you as we've been kind of, as Sherry and I have been thinking and praying about the church and, and as we, the, the elders at Anthem have been thinking and praying and even what God has been kind of stirring in in my heart, there's a couple of things he's calling us into that uh, we have no ability to do on our own, but it's through his grace and, and his building of this church that it'll happen. Uh, one of the things that we would love, 20 baptisms this year. Not because there's anything special about the number 20, but it just feels crazy because we're like brand new, right? But we trust that if we're obeying Jesus, he will grow his church and he will bring new life in his church. By this time next year, we would love to have two services, more opportunities to reach and minister to the people in Ventura. This year, we're hoping to double our community groups. We have kind of apprentice leaders and people we've identified as people we'd love to see leading community groups, and and we want to give them opportunities to lead and to serve and to shepherd the body. The next is by October, the one-year anniversary of our launch, we want to be participating in our first church plant, which seems really crazy right now. But it's something we want to continue to put in front of you. And the final thing is we want to make such an impact in this downtown community that we would be missed if we were to leave. I mean, that's the marker of a great church in a community serving the community is that they would be missed if we left. And we want that for downtown. I've shared with you guys a couple of times that just over the last 10 or 15 years, the, the downtown community has sort of been abandoned. There's just been this, this vacuum, this black hole of, of churches, gospel preaching churches in the area. There are a handful, but most of them have moved to different parts of the city, and we want to honor and love and serve the people that God's put right in front of us here in the downtown community. That's what's before us in the next year as a church. It seems crazy unless God's going to do it. But what we want to do, what we want to posture as, as leaders and what we want to posture as a church is we want to be ready to say yes to the things that God has for us. Even if we feel ill-equipped for it, even if we don't feel like we're ready for it, we want to say yes to these things. So just for a moment, I'm going to actually ask Jack to come up and, and get ready. We're going to respond in some worship. But just for a moment, I want to talk to the people who may have said no to God at some point. And here's what I want you to see in Nehemiah chapter 3. Many, if not all of the Israelites, had been living in that city for at least 40 years. Which means they had been living in the rubble and the crumble of the city that entire time. And at no point, there's a moment in the story where there is guilt or shame brewing up in them because they missed the opportunity or they have said no to God in the past. When Nehemiah comes cast the vision and said, this is what the Lord has for us. Whatever has happened in the 40 plus years up to that point, they say yes to God. So if there's guilt or shame brewing up in you right now because you have felt you've distanced yourself or have said no to God, know that the people of God lived with a broken city in shambles. And when Nehemiah came with a vision from God to rebuild, there was no hesitation, no wallowing in guilt, they jumped right in. Here's the truth. No matter how many times you've said no to God, he's inviting you right now into his story. And there's no condemnation, there's no punishment or anything like that. He desires you. He wants you to be part of his story. He equips you. You have not disappointed him. He's not been angry with you and it's not too late. 
And so how can we as a church and and as individuals of that church say yes to God today? How can we see what God is doing in the city, in our church, in our lives and, and say yes to him? What would it look like for our lives if we said yes to God a little more frequently in what he was calling us into? What part is God asking you to play in his, in his story and in his church? So I'm going to end uh, and I want to read a portion of Psalm 40 as Jack leads us into response here. So if you have your Bibles, you're more than welcome to join me there. But you're also, you know, okay to just close your eyes and let David's words be spoken over you. Starting in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. No one can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart.